Welcome to Beneath Your Beautiful, where guests share stories of adversity and perseverance, which inspire, encourage, and challenge us. We embrace these tough conversations, intimately exploring our loves, fears, and hopes with a delicious combination of depth and lightness. I am Mary McDermott. I am a mom. I am a wife and I am a founder of an organization called Special Abilities Network. And did you start that because your children or child, do you have one or two kids? I have two. Do they both have special needs? Just one. My older daughter, Charlie, is say typical. And then my uh, seven-year-old, Ruth, has a rare disease called tuberous sclerosis complex. And what is that? Man, they're all complicated. The Cran version is she has tumors form in her major organs. And so we just wait and do tests and see if they're in there and see what we have to do to combat them. And then she has seizures either because there's tubers in her head or because it's a byproduct of the disease as well. What happens when she does have them? So they can remove them. So we've had brain surgery, neurosurgery, or there is some chemo type medicine that you take that actually shrinks them. Once you go that route, there's no going back because then the tumors will go back to their original size that they were. So the response is our surgery. If they are operable, then that's awesome. That's the best case, actually. And then if not, then we have to go on a specific. It's actually cancer medicine that shrinks tumors. Okay. What does her outlook look like? What does her future look like? Yeah, that's the hardest question, right? So there's a spectrum for our families. We are actually so lucky. I realize that sounds crazy, but we really are lucky. Like we knew she had this when I was pregnant. There wasn't like she's born or she starts showing symptoms. And then we trying to navigate the world of figuring out diagnosis. Like we knew going in. And so we looked for seizures. We looked for all the things. And so we were very proactive to be able to react to them. So because of that, we had a neurosurgery in 2019. We had a change of medicine because for us, the immediate thing was seizure control. So that's kind of the name of the game. Like the tuber part sounds bad, but it's really seizure control is can affect learning. It affects everything. We wanted seizure control and that's why we had surgery in 2019. And then we changed medicine in January of 2020. We've been on a seizure vacation since March of 2020. So we're in this wonderful, beautiful place that we never thought we would be. And so her outlook is looking very bright to us today because she's currently at camp with her sister where we didn't know she'd ever be able to go to that camp. She's been able to do things in the last couple of years that I don't think my brain would allow me to go for her. We're very, very lucky in the world of our rare diseases or any rare diseases or anybody with seizures, really. We're in a really good seizure vacation. So we've been able to be parents to her rather than caregivers. What has it been like for you and your husband? were lucky to know early. I don't think I thought that when I was pregnant and I was visiting the EQ and crying my eyes out, right? Mm-hmm. But it's really a lucky thing to know your path. It's also hard because we have another child. So it was like in the beginning, even if you have a newborn, no matter what, it's divide and conquer, right? Like my husband was spending a lot of time with Charlie. I was with Ruth because she was a newborn no matter what. But the exponential piece of that was we were in the NICU. 
I was going to a lot of appointments after she was four months old with EEGs and all of the things that come with seizure control. Then we were even more kind of separated as in teams of also caregiving, parenting. It's hard to go back and forth between that. The beauty of that, though, is like maybe one person takes on the burden of how serious things are medically and the other one can just be a parent. So like I could go back and he would treat Ruth just like a newborn and a, and a little kid. And he would just treat her like anybody, like he treats Charlie, right? And mm-hmm. and I could take the stress off of the how serious the situation was and just be at all those medical appointments. So that was like from birth to four, probably. That was our dynamic. I think it has been a transition for us to both be parents. My job as a parent is to get my kids ready for the world. And so I think with Ruth... I would protect more and I I don't like that. I don't I don't want to be that parent. I actually want her to experience hard things and I'll be there for both of them. But with Ruth, there is an overprotectiveness that I feel that I, I don't love about my parenting sometimes. And it was an adjustment to be able to push her out a little and mm-hmm. have her experience things and have things be hard rather than protect. That's the hard thing of being a parent <laughs> in general. How can I not think about that or the worst of things that could happen with her? Be optimistic, be present. It's just a balance. For a mom who is pregnant and just finds this out, what suggestions or what would you tell her? If you could go back, what would you tell yourself? We met a cardiologist in the NICU, right? When we were visiting the NICU and I later in life, like we are friends now. (laughs) like grown-up friends. Like I made a new grown-up friend, which is a big deal. That is a big deal. I don't know if there's anything you can say. I'm sure she said all the things that she was supposed to say to me in that moment. But in my head, when I'm sitting with her, I was actually going through the process of grief in an hour, right? Like I was just like gonna pack that in because I got a two-year-old, I'm pregnant with my second, this is gonna be our path. And I'm like, I'm gonna get through this fast because I don't have another option. Like Mm -hmm. there's so many things that are going through your head. So I would just say you can actually like not just skip to X next emotion, like actually feel all the things you're feeling and work through it in a a healthier way rather than shoving that down will help you in the long run. It'll suck in the time. That's, that's how that works. But I mean, I'm in counseling now because I did that, right. I pushed it. Mm -hmm. If you can engage in someone that's going to help you work through those emotions while you're in it. I would really encourage that. Any support you can find that you actually don't think you even need. Grandparents that can take your other child, somebody that could possibly be a nurse that aren't afraid of kids that have higher medical needs that you can actually take a night off. They are going to give you a giant notebook at the end and be like, you need to call these people, ask them who's the first person I call and start with this one thing you can do today doesn't work, go to the next thing and go to the next thing. And then you are going to have to advocate for you and your family. So learning skills like questioning and being curious of a medical team, a school district, an OTPT office, just coming at it to say, I'm on a team. I want you on my team. And the whole goal is to make sure this kiddo gets what they need. You know, some of those relationships get into a vice principal I'm telling you this is how it should go. And as a mm-hmm. parent and advocate, you feel that doesn't feel good for anybody. But for you, when you're doing it for someone else, it really feels bad. Mm-hmm. 
those are a lot of things to do. But I think the first is make sure you have some support. If you need outside, do that, go through the feelings. And then as you work through them, you'll find your people. Did you find it hard to ask for help? I don't find it hard to ask for help. I was hesitant because what if I raise my hand and no one's there? Mm. There's always a reason you're not asking for help. Either you're fearful that I'm wrong. I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm doing. Or what if I raise my hand and no one's there? And the third was for me because we do have a rare disease. And so I was like, well, if nobody has this, can anybody help me? And the answer was yes. I mean, she was going to have behavior things. There's people out there that have kids with seizures. Like you just have to maybe be more curious about like, who do I actually need help from? Did you find that people tried to help you when you did finally ask? Yeah. So I went to a mom's night through the Isaac Foundation, Spokane group, and they were moms of all types of kids, all ages. Found a couple of moms there that had kids with seizures and rare diseases. So it was really just awesome to be, have the option of a mom's night. Also, that's the reason why, the reason I'm saying you need support is because if you don't have support, how are you going to go to a mom's night? So like just having that option. And I got to know Holly really well, the executive director, and I'm on her board now. And just, it's just, you start to grow your network and then it's hard to always be the filter of the right one to ask, but you just start asking everybody and hope that something works. Do you find it helpful to tell your story so that people who are suffering, not knowing there's other people out there, do you think that really helps? Yeah. So this whole thing started, I helped put on a rare disease day event in Spokane. Like this is my job. Like I'm obviously really, I'm involved in it because I love it, but this all triggered from Ruth was in the NICU. So we had her in the hospital, right? We knew she was going to be the NICU. That was just like her path. That's what we needed at the time. And you can say that until you're blue in the face. Get back to your other question. What would you warn people about? But when you actually do that, like it wasn't the birth or the NICU that was traumatic. It was, I was discharged after the normal two-day time that mom gets to spend and she was still there. Mm-hmm. And that drive home was awful. Like I knew... In my head, my brain is logical. It's like, she's in the right place. She needs all that care. This is awesome. And my heart was like, she should be with me. I'm leaving my baby in a hospital full of strangers. And she's two days old. And I'm two days post having a baby. And she should be with me. Mm -hmm. And so my wish at that time was there was a list they gave me of moms that had gone through that experience that I could just call and be crying at the very least. That's it. My whole mission and anything that I'm doing in this community is like, it shouldn't be worse for someone else coming behind me. How do I get a volunteer list of moms that would do that? And that's just this tiny thing. Like think of all the other things that we have that are worse because we have to relearn it every time and we're going through a new experience every time. And like, if we could only like bottle that, it really breaks me up to think that there's a mom probably getting discharged at this very moment, going through that same heartbreak. I want to fix it for her. I don't want her to feel alone. Support needs to happen. I don't know if you know, but I take pictures of babies at end of life and I go into the hospital and watch these moms 
saying goodbye to their children. I'm hoping that there's a community for them where they can talk to somebody or cry with somebody that's gone through it. Having lost my mother, I think that nobody can understand what it's like to lose your mom until you lose your mom. You can appreciate it and empathize, but you just don't understand. I just looked on Facebook and one of my friend's dad is at the end and I just texted her. I was like, hey, I was there for my dad. If you need a soft place to land, anytime, any day, any location, let me know. So sweet. Yeah. You have to go through it. It's going to suck. There's no easy way through. There's no super fixed, but like an easy way to support people is just say, I'm here. That's all they really need. Even sitting side by side, not even talking, just being present to somebody's pain is a really beautiful thing. My purpose in life is about knowing me and loving me. If I do something beyond that, that's just icing on the cake. But my whole purpose, I think, of living is understanding me. Yeah, and being kinder. Like the things that go through my head that I tell myself, I would never tell another human. Mm. Like my filter is like, would I tell my kids this? When I learned to be nice to myself, it was because I heard my daughter as a young woman say something that sounded just like me. And I was horrified. And it wasn't kind being kind to herself. And no, it wasn't kind. And all I saw was this beautiful woman in front of me. And that's when I realized, well, I'm the same. I was somebody's beautiful daughter. I have to love me like I love my daughter. Mm -hmm. And that really changed my perspective on the kindness I show myself. I agree. And it's a battle. It doesn't stay the same, right? It's Mm -hmm. not like you learned that and you got it. What's the most surprising thing about yourself? I have to learn the same lesson over and over again. I love that. That was my favorite. I was like, yes. What the hell? At the time when I read it, I was like learning something hard about myself. And I was like, oh. One point I was good at this and then I forgot how to be good at this. I want to learn it and hold it and not have to do it again. (laughs) Not learning it and holding on to it just makes life very exciting. I'll never get bored. I'm just realizing that this now talking to you, but I think it goes hand in hand with confidence too, right? So I always thought, Confidence was like a fickle thing. And I just, sometimes I would have it, some days I wouldn't. And it's actually completely related to me being kind to myself. Then I'm way more confident externally. So I think like the measure of how kind I am to myself will be a representation of how I feel like I can go out into the world to get to your point of like, what's your job, right? Like it's to be kind to myself because then I can be so much more myself to the world. And that's what I want to be. I don't want to be somebody else's version. And when I am not kind, it's usually not actually my voice. It's somebody else's. That's so good. I find too, that if I'm feeling self-conscious about something and I literally just change the way I'm standing, I put my shoulders back, then all of a sudden I am the stature that I'm holding. It only takes that to remind myself, straighten your crown. I'll make myself go out into the world. I might as well take an hour and walk or I could be miserable and trudge through a bunch of emails or do whatever tasks that I'm not wanting to do. That confidence thing that we just talked about, that's a big deal right now. Like in my head, I'm, I'm kind of realizing it's not external. That's affecting my confidence. It's my internal, actually. Mm-hmm. And it could be an external force telling my inner voice that I'm not great. But that to me is a huge link that I hadn't put together until we just talked. And that, that changes everything. Yeah. And then the other thing I'm trying to work on is like, not 
an overly optimist. Like I'm not a covered in frosting and sprinkles person and we're all wonderful with butterflies and rainbows. But I think there is a balance between having joy and sorrow all in the same mix. It's not just one or the other. I'm just trying to have just a little bit more joy than the other every day. Yeah. And I feel like I probably won the day that day. Now, if it tips the other way, it's okay. It's just I'm going to be sad that day. Or, you know, I like breakup songs, but I'm in a really great happy marriage. Like you're like that human that like likes that kind of stuff. Then I think you need the balance of both and how to navigate through them. And how is that going to affect your day? And the world is that humanity dictates that there's good and bad and it's how we handle it. There's no such thing as perfect. Even a happy marriage has bumps. Well, perfect marriage actually is a bumpy marriage, right? Like, if everything was perfect every day, do you think that would make you happy? You can't have light without dark. You have to have those things to see it better. Without the loss, you can't see what you do have because you take it for granted. Yeah. And then how much can you handle of the other? So right? have you ever been told, I could never do what you're doing? What do you think about that? I mean, you absolutely would. There's no way out, right? That I don't know how you do it, especially in the early times, because it was a lot. But I'm like, you would absolutely do it. Right. You would do it in a heartbeat. You would do everything that I'm doing. There's no way out. Right. Like, what other option? In my head, I would be always like, what other option is there? And they don't know what to say. I get that. Like, a lot. We're a handful. <laughs> and I totally excuse, like, if you don't know what to say, like, I'm going to give you all the grace in the world because, like, I don't know what to say to me sometimes either. <laughs> Do you have something you would like to hear? I think ask curious questions about Ruth. If you are curious, just ask mm -hmm. the question. I'm open to that rather than just being quiet. And I think there's a lot of judgment in parents and parenting in general. And so if you're just sitting over there thinking I'm doing something bananas with my child and judging it, like, just ask, like, wow, yeah. you're really like trying to get her to go down a slide and she really doesn't want to. And I'm like, yeah, well, because I got to push her. Right. And if she has like a breakdown or something like that, I might not just go up and because I know what she's doing. Like, I know what I know what you're doing. And I'm going to let you have that tantrum. And that's how it's going to go. Like, and it happens in stores. It happens in places where you see kids do that. And the parent is probably like, yep, this is our normal thing. Like, this is normal to mm -hmm. me. And if you're like, oh, is your, is your, is your kid okay? Are you okay? Just want to make sure you're okay. Like as another outsider looking in, just ask if they're okay. Ask if they need help. And that could be it. I can see it from the other side. Like I can totally see, like, I don't know what to do. And if you recognize that in your brain, just be like, uh, if I were them, what would I want somebody to say? Great advice. When I wasn't a parent, the neighbor had a kid like three years old. And I remember, ugh, control your kid. <laughs> and then I had a kid who was three. My kid is 28 now, and I'm still embarrassed that I ever thought that. The best example I give people is, you know, when you see a kid's shoe, like on the side of the road and you haven't had kids and you're like, how can that happen? There's a shoe on the side of the road. And then you have a kid and they're like throwing stuff out the window. And you're like, that's how weird that thing on the side of the road. <laughs> I'm just surprised that it's parents that are judging you rather than people who don't have children yet. Because when I didn't have a kid, I was like, you know, I knew it all. 
I give those people an extra pass if you don't have kids. I did think I knew things. I think as parents, we are, it's like a weird, competitive, judgmental environment. Mm. If we get, that's not one of my bucket things I need to change. But if somebody wants to, I would <laughs> definitely help them because I think the competitiveness and judgment of parents and what your kids are going to be, what they're doing, what all that stuff, what freaking percentile are they in? Like I'm over <laughs> it all. And I can't be over it more. Like, yeah. and I want it to be just not even in the vernacular of something that comes into our heads. And I think it starts coming from a great place. Like, I don't think it's coming from a competitive place, but it can grow to that. Right. Oh, my kid's in the 99th percentile. Great. He's going to be six, seven. I love that for you. What does that matter? Well, really, what does it matter? I don't know if you think this is true, but I feel like the kids that did the best in school are not necessarily the most successful adults I know. And the kids like me who is smoking in the parking lot, skipping school, I feel pretty successful. So you can't judge anybody anyway, because you never know how they're going to turn out. Yeah, no, I mean, all my friends that are here on the side had a rough sophomore years of high school and college. So like, exactly. All the, we all got stuff, right? We all have hard things that we went through. Yeah, I wasn't the perfect student, but like, I'm really great at what I do now. Right. To get to your point, like, I want to be kinder to myself, but that's awesome. Right. Who cares what kind of student you were or seven-year-old having a fit? Like your goal of being kinder to yourself and also doing that, you're going to find something you love to do all the time. That is the goal. Like find something you love to do that's going to fill your day. And like things just look different. The confidence thing that I'm in, like that's going to change the way I think about myself. Well, I think if you can remember when you saw Charlie, this beautiful child, you were also that miracle. That's what I remind myself all the time. I was somebody's miracle once, and I still am. It really is a miracle that we're alive. Yeah, we get this one. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Beneath Your Beautiful, hosted by Hara Allison. And thank you for your ratings and reviews. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Stay tuned. <laughs>